0: If Psalm 148, which we looked at last week, it spoke of the benefits to the whole of creation through the praise of the church, then our text today, which is Psalm 149, reminds us, surprisingly, that the church is also an instrument of judgment. We shall make two points. They're on the outline on the back inside page of your bulletin. The victory, verses 1 through 5, and vengeance in verses 6 through 9. So first, the victory. Psalm 149 begins and it ends with this summons to praise the Lord. And in the middle of verse 1, it says, sing to the Lord a new song. We've seen this before, but the new song in Scripture is sung in response to to new events, to to great new saving deeds that the Lord has done. And so these new songs are often songs with enthronement motifs. They're songs about rejoicing in the fact that God has manifested his kingly reign and rule. Or another way to put this is that the new song is a victory celebration. It's a victory celebration. And the origin of this psalm then, Psalm 149, is probably, almost certainly, some sort of military victory won by Israel. But as we'll see, this new song broadens out and it points to the new creation. The new song points to the new creation. And it's sung here... The text says the new song, the song in response to God's mighty deeds, is sung in the assembly of his faithful people. Some translations say saints, some say godly, some say faithful people. They're mentioned three times in the text. And it's literally the word Hasid, like you might know of the Hasidic Jews. It's that word. Hasid is related to hased. Hased is the word for God's covenant love. You are the Hasid, the faithful ones who have been embraced by Hased, the faithful covenant love of God. And that's why you sing. That's why we sing. And that's who sings the new song in this text, the Hasid. The text tells us in verse 2 that Israel is to rejoice in their Maker. This is not here a reference to God as Creator but a reference to God as the one who created Israel, who forged them into a nation. They're to be glad, the text says, in their king. Again, we've already seen this, but this kingly connection, kingly victory points to new creation. We've we've seen this before, but Psalms, and I mentioned these Psalms last week, Psalms like 96 and 98, are earlier examples of new songs, and they end with the coming of the Lord, the King. The King to judge the nations. And so the psalmist is summoning. And he's summoning, as he always does, or or often does, the people to praise, but it's exuberant, full-bodied praise. Let them, verse 3 says, praise his name with dancing, and make music to him with the timbrel. Or the tambourine, the timbrel and the harp. This probably has in its backdrop, background, the, the dancing with the timbrel of Miriam and the women of Israel at the Red Sea, the, the great kingly act of victory in Israel's history. Israel's dancing was not a regular part of the temple liturgy, but at special celebrations of triumph. As At the Red Sea, or when David brought the ark to Jerusalem, there was in fact dancing. But the point here is whether it's on a special occasion or whether it's in regular worship, the Psalms have taught us at least this that worship is always to be vigorous and full bodied and joyful and loud. And in verse 4, We finally come to the reasons for the praise. The Lord, the text says, takes delight in his people. It's a magnificent phrase. Literally, the Lord takes pleasure in his people. God takes pleasure in you. And that pleasure that he takes, that delight, is to be echoed back in praise. It is... Astounding, I think, that God takes pleasure in the church. I mean, it would really be an incredibly arrogant thing to assert if He hadn't already revealed it or said it to us. He takes pleasure. I've said this before, but I like to put it this way God does not only love you, He likes you. And that's important. In other words, He has affection for His people, He takes pleasure. And this pleasure is not just—it's um, not just a random emotion. It's rooted in his free, sovereign election, his good pleasure, as Scripture says, the good pleasure of his will. But this is the root cause for our existence: sovereign, free, inscrutable, un- unable to be calculated election he chose Israel, he says, not because they were greater or better or more numerous or more virtuous than any other people, but out of his sheer pleasure, out of his sheer goodness, he sets his love on us. And so the church exists. It's a miracle that the church exists. The church cannot just be reduced to some kind of sociological analysis a sort of club or a sort of spiritual gathering. It's the product of the election of this God. And so God delights in you, especially so he delights in your praise. You can bring him pleasure. Not only does he take pleasure in his flock, the text says he crowns the humble with victory. There's a lovely alternative translation, which says he beautifies the meek with salvation. God crowns us, right, to share in his kingly victory. Salvation here in this text is translated often as victory. And I think it's very important that you think of salvation in terms of kingly victory. God's saving, delivering triumph. This way we see that salvation is not merely a personal matter. We've seen this repeatedly in the Psalms. It is cosmic in scope. It's the royal vindication of the king and the crowning of his meek people, his lowly ones. So, this victory, this being beautified with God's salvation or adorned is an honor, the text says. God bestows honor on you. The one who's worthy of all honor bestows this honor on us. Both the existence of the church, rooted in the free election of God, and the salvation of the church, the victory of the church, are pure gift. They owe nothing to human accomplishment. And this note of victory, this note of honor, which God bestows on you, clothes you with, beautifies you with, anticipates the second half of the psalm. And so the second point, and this is where things get a little, inter- little more interesting perhaps with Psalm uh, 149. The second point is vengeance. With verse 6, the psalm takes uh, what could be a startling turn. May the praise of God be in their mouths and a double-edged sword in their hands. That's an unexpected pairing. Though I don't think it really should be unexpected. Let's uh, let's look at the first phrase first. The praise of God. The praise of God here is literally the exaltations of God. And it also has a wonderful alternative translation. The high praises of God. I love that translation. Let the high praises of God be in their mouths. There are a lot of base things. As well as a lot of noble and good things you can do with your mouth, your voice. But the high praises of God in your mouths, and the word for mouths here is literally throats, praises to be throaty. The high praises of God in our mouths is the highest use to which any human vocalization or human speech can be put. It orients all our speech. Among the many, the many benefits of public worship is that it reorients your speech acts as a human creature toward he whom is worthy of your praise and exaltation. Speech gets skewed when we live without the high praises of God in our mouths. So nothing's higher than this, and nothing's nobler than this. Nothing's more exalted than redeemed creatures praising the high king. The highest praise for the highest, noblest object. And in that action, you are dignifying your own status as a creature, as a human being. So, last week we we saw and we talked a little bit about how simply being a creature obligates us to praise. But here we can add to that being a creature crowned with victory, adorned or beautified with salvation, a, a, a creature in the sovereignly elected and chosen community in which God takes pleasure, doubly obligates us to praise. But, and we've seen this in the Psalms too, praise is also holy war. It's a kind of spiritual warfare. And so in addition to the high praises of God in your throat, you need this two-edged sword in your hands. Now, I think it's legitimate to ask, what, what is this about? The text tells us, in pretty stark language, it says, to inflict vengeance on the nations. And punishment on the peoples. Now, this this text was misused, as you might imagine, it was misused various times, but it was misused in the 16th century to stir up the peasants' war. It was misused in the seventeenth century to stir up the Catholic princes for the Thirty Years' War. And and that way of reading the text is a serious error. We're repeatedly called in both Testaments to not take vengeance. Vengeance is the Lord's. He will repay. And so what this text is, is teaching is that the saints are going to have a role in administering the final judgment at the end of the age. This is a reference to that judgment. The judgment here is universal. It's not local. It's vengeance upon the nations. Punishment on the peoples, plural. Now, even more clearly, Jesus and the New Testament teach us that now, right now, this is the age of grace. It is true, God judges now, but judgment in full, vengeance comes later. And then, and only then, do the saints have some kind of role in vengeance, this text says. So I want to tease this out a little bit more, so there's no confusion about what the text is calling us to. This is a passage, it has been noted, with the language of crowning and adorning and vengeance, which has many links. The passage has many links to Isaiah 61. And Isaiah 61 is the passage which Jesus Christ opened his public ministry with at Nazareth and was read as the gospel lesson this morning. He says there this, our Lord does, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. The Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom to the captives, release for prisoners, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, as you may know, Jesus does not cite, he does not cite the next line from Isaiah 61. He does not apply it to his first advent. And that line is this, and to proclaim the day of vengeance of our God. So his first coming, his appearing, is about the year, the time of the Lord's favor or grace. His second coming is about the day of vengeance. And so there's no call in the text to armed holy war. Tragically, as the text has been misread. What is in view is that somehow the saints are going to participate in this coming glorious eschatological judgment. A judgment, by the way, which we saw read from Revelation 19 this morning in the New Testament lesson. Where Christ, the word of God, appears on a white horse to judge the nations. He has a two-edged sword in his mouth. And with him following are the saints. So we could put it this way. Somehow, the victory which he crowns us with in this text, in verse 4 is a victory we shall help him enforce at the end of the age. But it's important to see this. And you can see it in the Revelation text. He is the word of God. He has, as his own proper possession, this two-edged sword. Whatever our role is, it's delegated. We're delegated actors in the drama. He's the judge. He's the kingly victor. So, There are, I think, some things that are actually very practical and touched down in our lives about a text like this. Which might not be obvious at first, but I think they should shape our thinking here and now. And I've got four of them listed there, I think, in the outline. Yes. I'm going to call these the sword, the meek, the word, and the sentence. So the first one is the sword. So, those who want the high praises of God in their mouths, but can't imagine the two edged sword in their hands in the coming judgment, are hopelessly sentimental. Right? To banish this image or this reality from Christian existence, it's, it's a mistake. It's to fatally mistake the nature of the world. It's to gloss the world's violence and its injustice and its horrors, its trampling of the saints, which continues to this very hour. The praise of God, beloved, is not a flight from history. It is entrance into the agony of history. It's yearning for the end of that agony. That's what praise is. And that's why praise is always to be wed to or infused with a passion for the rectification of God's good creation. The Ark of praise, to, to paraphrase Martin Luther King here, the Ark of praise bends toward justice. Its arc might be long, but it bends toward justice. How different this is, I think, from the sort of flighty, sentimental, otherworldly tinniness of a lot of American praise. Praise is an entrance into the agony of the human condition because it is a yearning for the new creation. And without this vision of God the King, and we who are kings with him, we who are adorned or beautified with victory in forcing his reign, Without it, the meek would never inherit the earth. The meek are not going to inherit the earth because the rulers of the earth decide one day to get together and renounce their power unilaterally and hand it over to the meek. And so the second thing I want to notice here is just these meek ones. It is in verse 4, the humble ones or the meek who are crowned with victory. It is, notice, the meek The meek who inflict vengeance. It's the meek who bind kings and nobles. And there's no dissonance. The psalmist doesn't say, Oh, I don't know how to, I can't handle this. There's so so much contradiction and internal opposition in this. None at all. There's no no anguish in it. Because the Jesus who appears at the end of the age is the meek and lowly one. And the wrath which he administers is the wrath of the Lamb, the meek one. And so what we have in this passage is not meekness, you know, unleashed in bloodthirsty rage. This is meekness in just and upright action. Vengeance is meekness in action, in decisive eschatological action. The meekness here is essential. So if those who want the high praises of God in their mouths without the two-edged sword are sentimental, those who want the sword without being numbered among the meek are wicked. The third thing is the word, the word. The sword in view, the sword in view is unleashed in and by your praise by singing, by declaring, by confessing the word of God. right? You know this, the sword is a metaphor in Scripture for the word of God. Ephesians 6, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Hebrews 4 says that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. So, beloved, get this, the sword which is mentioned, the two-edged sword in Psalm 149 is already placed in your hand. And it's already being wielded by you in spiritual warfare. So the same word which we speak and proclaim now in the year of the Lord's favor. As gospel to the nations. Will be proclaimed then in the day of vengeance as judgment on the nations. But it's the same word, gospel now, vengeance and punishment later. Now, with the keys of the kingdom, we bind and loose men and women. We remit or retain their sins by the word of God. Later, we bind kings and nobles by that same word. So the fourth point here is the sentence. The sentence. Verse 9, notice it. To carry out the sentence written against them. So this again demonstrates that this has nothing to do with personal vengeance. This is an enforcement as the judge's bailiffs, if you will. The church has the judge's bailiffs of the written word. The sentence written. The law, the prophets, the gospel. The word of Jesus who is the word of God. So if this is the sentence, and it's to be carried out by meek ones with the high praises of God in our mouths and a two-edged sword in our hands, then something critical follows. And I'll close with this remark on what I think follows from this. And it's this, our corporate lives, but especially our public worship, is then a kind of law school. Here's a metaphor never used for public worship. Law school. The reason it's a law school is because it's holy preparation and holy warfare which terminates in this holy judgment. You are being fitted for something. You're going to have to take the bar. In fact, you're going to have to administer the bar to the nations. How different is that? than the conception of what worship is out there more popularly. In this coming judgment, you have an administrative role. And thus what we are about here is deadly serious business. Having the high praises of God in your mouth is how you get a sharpened sword in your hands. And sharpening your sword, which here means engaging with Holy Scripture, with seriousness and devotion, that purifies and it shapes the high praises of God in your mouth. In one sense, this is two ways of saying the same thing, right? To... to, To have the high praises of God in your mouth is to have the sword in your hands. To exercise the sword in your hands skillfully is to to be able to praise God in a high and fitting and noble manner. And both of these things fit you. They train you to be a people that God can entrust to carry out the sentence written against nations and kings on the coming day of eschatological judgment. I mean, that's an astonishing vision of the future. Here's a question to the church Can our worship and our engagement with Scripture underwrite that calling? I mean, we're going to mediate the disputes and enforce the law of God on the nations and the kings and their nobles? That's the destiny? I thought we were just trying to be as nice as we possibly can and go to heaven when we die. No, this is the destiny. This is what worship is doing. It's to underwrite this destiny. So that you could be a person, we could be a people, who have these praises and this sort. Without skillful or intimate knowing of the book of the law, it's hard to see how we can either have the high praises of the high king in our mouths, Or a sharpened sword to carry out the sentence which is written. And yet that's just what this text summons the church to, does it? And this, the text concludes, this is a glory for all of his faithful people. Your glory, the calling to eternal glory in Christ, your own glorification, the glorious renewal of the creation, the coming glory of all new things is bound up with this. This is the glory of his faithful people. Notice this God has adorned you with this victory, this salvation. You're already crowned with it. It was called an honor in verse 5. And in verse 9, similar word, it is your glory. To enforce the final manifestation of that victory. And in this time. This time we're in now. This time in between. We prepare. We're already singers of the new song. We already have this sword. And so let us have the high praises of our king in our throats. And his double-edged sword. His word in our hands.